Good evening and welcome to Registry Report Radio. My name is Michael McKay and we'll be talking with Lenore Skenazy tonight. But first, let me tell you how you can listen to Registry Report Radio in a multitude of ways. One of the easiest and most ubiquitous ways to listen to Registry Report Radio is to just click on a link that you see in social media. It will automatically open a player which allows you to listen to our live and recorded broadcasts. If you don't have access to social media or a computer, then you can always call in and listen to our broadcast live on the telephone. And it doesn't have to be a cellular or smartphone. It can even be a wired phone. That number is 563-999-3712. Just call in and listen as long as we're broadcasting live. For the recorded shows, you can and should go to blogtalkradio.com and just click on whatever episode you want to listen to. Our guest this evening is Lenore Skenazy, and she is a graduate of Yale University. She got her master's degree at Columbia. She spent 14 years writing for the New York Daily News, then went on to write for the New York Sun and even for NPR. She was named America's worst mom for letting her nine-year-old ride the subway alone. She's the author of Free Range Kids and a blogger at freerangekids.com. Welcome to the show, Lenore. We're so glad to have you this evening. Oh, well, thanks. I'm happy to be here. My first question is, when you get named America's worst mom, do you get a trophy <laughs> or a plaque or something like that? <laughs> you know, everybody gets a trophy, dot, 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 except me. <laughs> I didn't get a trophy, no. Although notoriety has has its rewards in its own right, so I'm not upset about the title. I think it's kind of cool. Did you invent the phrase helicopter parenting, or was that something already in use? No, no. That was out there, and what's interesting to me is that suddenly it seems really old-fashioned to talk about helicopter parenting. Now everybody's talking about snowplow parenting. I think helicopter parenting was more straightforward just fear for kids as they walked to school or as they did anything on their own. And so the helicopter was above them, making sure that they were, you know, getting wherever they were going safely. And this new term that just sort of took the social media world by storm, even though it'd been brewing for a couple of years, is snowplow parenting, which is more like snowplow. You're clearing everything out of the way so that the path is absolutely free of any uh, danger or difficulty for your kids and just making sure that their path is straight to success is what they're hoping. Mm -hmm. Did you ever think you'd be a tree climbing advocate? (laughs) You know, don't tell anyone. I'm not a tree climber myself. I just advocate for others. I'm a total wimp. I was just, my brother-in-law was just visiting this past weekend. We grew up in the suburbs of Chicago and somehow we were reminiscing about gym class. And I don't know about you, but back in the day, one of the things we had to do in gym was climb a rope. Do you, do you remember this? Like mm-hmm. there'd be a giant oh, absolutely. rope hanging. Okay, well, could you yeah. climb it? <laughs> yes. Well, I was. I grew up in Hawaii climbing coconut trees, so absolutely, I was a oh. climber. I, I would climb anything that was vertical. Wow. Well, I couldn't get off the knot. Let's just put it that way. So I advocate for others climbing <laughs> high and mm-hmm. far, and certainly if you can get a coconut out of it, so much the better. But me, I'm, uh, I'm just a, a wimp, total weakling. You've obviously been keeping up with the news stories about the Parkland suicide. What do you think uh, about Yeah, actually, I, it's so, what can anybody think about that? The shooting is horrific. The fact that I can't even imagine what the parents are going through. You know, you think you dodged the bullet, literally, and then you didn't. It's just, 
it's too traumatizing almost for anybody. <laughs> you know, it's almost too traumatizing to hear about. I wish I had an absolute way of making sure nothing like this ever happened again, from the massacre to the suicides. I don't know what will stop. I mean, we have 300 million guns in America already, so it's not even as if if we sold no guns ever again that we could be sure that nothing like this would happen. What is driving me a little crazy is because these tragedies are so just, you know, they just tear your heart out, we focus on them and we get even more afraid. And I'm not saying that fear leads to massacres. It doesn't, but fear leads to a lot of bad places. And thinking about your kids leaving every day as if they might not come home is a bad way to live, especially when we're lucky enough to live in obviously not perfectly safe times, but compared to any other era, our kids are safer. And so despair, despair is bad. And I remember after, gosh, I've been at this so long, there was some horrible tragedy, and I can't remember what it was. Maybe it was after the Sandy Hook massacre, mm-hmm. which was already, what, 10 years ago? Is that how long it was ago? I don't really remember. But in any event, after it happened and the whole country was just revolted, almost staggering, some of the responses struck me as really terrible. I heard from one mom who said that the daycare center that she brought her kids to was now requiring that once you press the numbers to get into the door, you know, the the, the key code, you go in and if there's somebody behind you, even if you know them, you must close the door and then make them press the key code again to get in. And this was one of those sort of really brainless security theater responses that is pointless and sort of ruins community feelings because the chances that you, you're the mom, you're bringing in your kid, and behind you is a dad juggling his twins, and you say sorry, and you slam the door in his face, uh, the chances that you have prevented him from massacring his two children that he's holding in his arms and everyone else in the daycare center is nil. (laughs) And the chances that you have created ill will and started your kids early on into thinking in a sort of paranoid way that they can't trust anyone and that each person is just as bad as the next and they're all potential mass murderers, that's a really crazy way to approach life. And it actually, I think, makes kids less safe, makes all of us unsafe because any kind of sixth sense you might have or common sense that you might have, you're supposed to ignore in favor of complete and utter and total and endless paranoia. So Mm -hmm. I know that's far away from Parkland, but I just know that when we have a way of reacting in the country with great sympathy, which I understand, but then with this sort of one-two punch of, therefore, to make sure this never happens again, we'll never let our kids leave the house, or we'll turn the school into a prison, or we will make the kids march in naked so we can be sure they're not carrying any guns or we'll tell everybody to slam the door in the face of the person right behind them who they've known for nine years because you never know so one of the things that does upset me about the country is we all want to do something we all want to make everybody safer but the answer of like therefore do something draconian that might feel right, but the the unintended repercussions are often terrible. Sure. Now, I know you're not a statistician, but I have a two-part no. question for you here. And these Parkland suicides in the last week, do you think it's statistically an outlier? 
I mean, if you took any high school in America, there are going to be a certain number of suicides. Do you think that the, uh, the media and society in general is exploiting something that is statistically normal? Yeah, I, hate I, to call it I normal, don't know. But... Yeah, nothing's normal about youth suicide. So I don't know. And I have to say, I didn't read about the one today. So I don't know any details about what happened with this latest person and whether he or she, I don't even know if it's a he or she. Which was it? I think it's a yeah. father, a father of one, of one of the students. Okay, I thought it was another student. Two students yeah. this week, and then a father. What I understand, and maybe I misread it, but that's my understanding. I don't know. I mean, we do. There's uh, there's a line somewhere between sympathy and morbid fascination, and I don't even know where my I am on that line. But the media does love a horrific story. Somebody once said it to me best. They said, "The media is not there to inform you. The media is there to make money." <laughs> And so they inform right. you of the things that will keep you watching because that way your eyeballs are counted. And the more people who are watching at any given moment, the more they can charge for advertising. And so that's why you see the story of something that is horrific and scary rather than even me. I don't always click on that. There was good news today, too. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, we're all hardwired to be very anxious about something that could hurt us. And mm -hmm. until about closing in on 200 years ago now, we didn't have photography. Right? Before there was a way of creating an image and disseminating it easily, basically anything that you were afraid of was something in your immediate surroundings. So like you might be afraid of tarantulas if you were in tarantula-ridden area, whereas I might be afraid of grizzly bears if I was living near them. And that's because we'd both seen them, we'd both seen people hurt by them or killed by them, and that was that. And so it made a lot of sense to take in the image of something that could hurt us and put it smack in the middle of our amygdala and say, like, watch out. The second you see this, it could be anywhere. So if you, if you hear a twig breaking, you know, look up and be, be prepared to run because it might be a grizzly. But now we get pictures. First of all, we started getting, first of all, photography came along and started showing us things from all over the world. Then along came video, and then it came into our home. And pretty soon our brains are being saturated with this steady barrage of the saddest, scariest possible things. Mad men with guns and ships off the coast of Norway going down and of course predators and gunmen and rapists and poison. You know, whatever it is that's shocking is put in front of us and the brain, the chances that the brain that's been evolving for a million years quickly evolved in the last 200 to say, ah, it's just a picture from Australia or I'm not going to worry about it. That's in the States. 20 states away from me, or I'm not going to worry about that. That only happens once in a blue moon. It hasn't evolved. It's taking in all this scary stuff all the time, and then your brain works like Google. So when you ask it, gee, I wonder if my kid can stay, you know, can wait at the bus stop by herself. Up pops J.C. Dugard. Up pops Eitan Pates. You know, these are stories that we've known, you know, two cases over the last 40 years, literally, of kids taken from their bus stops. And those are the most easily accessible stories. So they fill in the first couple of search results in our brain, like Google. 
if you're actually searching Google for like where can I get a good deal on a camera or a vacuum cleaner and it you know we generally look at the first page of results and we find some place to buy our vacuum cleaner and that's that and that makes sense because those search results mean something but the search results in our brain are always going to be wildly anomalous because we can find them because they're so scary and are easy to reach and there's a, a term for this it's called the availability heuristic that these stories are the most available so they pop to the top of our search engine in our brain and then we also have a way of thinking what is easiest to retrieve is most likely true or most likely to happen so the fact that up pops an abduction in our brain, we go, well, kids are always being sent. Literally, when I started Free Range Kids 10 years ago, after I let my son ride the subway, one of the moms here in New York City said to me, oh, of course they're safe in the city, but in the suburbs, aren't they always getting plucked off their bicycles? Like they were apples on a tree. <laughs> like it uh -huh. was so common that strangers were abducting children right and left. And where did that come from? That came from the news and Law and & Order and CSI and... Every scary movie is in there as if it happened to someone you know right nearby. I mean, our brain has not evolved beyond that. We can say, oh, it's fiction, don't be so scared, or oh, it happened far away, or these things are rare. But your brain is a pretty basic instrument for keeping you, it thinks it's keeping you safe, and in fact, in a media-saturated environment, it's keeping you afraid. Sure. In a lot of ways, we share an awful lot with almost every other animal in the animal kingdom which is we're hardwired to protect our children, and it isn't always rational. In fact, it's rarely rational. It's just instinct that kicks in. Wait, wait, can I just say oh, one thing about instinct? Sure. Mm -hmm. The instinct to keep our children safe is very real, but the instinct to be afraid the second they walk out of the house and go three blocks to school is cultural, and we know that because, first of all, around the world, parents let their children go three blocks to school starting at age six, seven, or eight, and they don't quake in their shoes the second the children are outside of the house. And we know that this is cultural because a generation ago, nobody was thinking this way. My guess is that your mom let you walk to school and sure. she didn't close the door and start weeping with fear. Oh, my God, what have I done? I can never live with myself if he doesn't come home. This was a crazy thing. Let me go get the car. My mom let me, you know, my mom quit her job to stay at home, to be a stay-at-home mom with her kids. So she was very eager to be involved and supportive and protective when she was raising me and my sister. My dad worked and my mom stayed at home. But she let us both walk to school starting at age five because to be worried about that would have been seen as abnormal or overprotective or anxious or paranoid almost. So not instinct to say the second I don't have my eyes on my kids, it's natural to be nervous. That's new. Right, right. I'm thinking that it's instinct to react to the fear-mongering that we see in the media, unfortunately. Yeah. And I, I don't yeah. think we'll ever be totally free of that. I'm going to pass to our resident mom, who's a member of our panel tonight. That's Shauna Baldwin. And I'm sure she has a bazillion questions for you. So take it away, Shauna. Okay. Hi, Shauna. I have to say, I'm good, but I'm so happy to be talking to you. I'm a Shauna fan, so this is great. <laughs> Well, I am a Lenore fan, so we are in good company being the worst mom in America and uh, That's probably right, right, right. the most known sex offender mom in America. So, I'd you say know, you probably are, not? yeah. <laughs> you are. Well, Lenore, I have to say I you know, agree with pretty much all your work, and I'm very familiar with your work, and you've even had my story on Free Range Kids, which I appreciate that. 
talking it's about an important it, story. I mean, I hope everybody who's listening knows your story because it's really important. It just shows how off the rails we've gone in terms of making these laws, like I said, that are a reaction often to something horrific and in our desire to keep our children safe and to make sure nothing bad happens. You can't, you can't make sure nothing ever bad happens again. <laughs> you just can't. And, and in trying to, we don't care like whose lives we ruin in the process. The, the weird thing about our public sex offender registry, as you know, probably way better than me, is that the studies show it's not making kids any safer. It's not a public safety issue. If it was, it would make kids safer, and, and that's not what it's doing. Not at all. I agree with you on that. I actually believe that the lack of education for our children makes it worse for them as far as them breaking laws, them not understanding sex. If we're only teaching our children about sexual abuse or this is bad or whatever the case may be, then that's the only thing mm -hmm. they're going to think about sex. Like you said, that'd be the only thing they think about if that's all we're teaching them. So where's the opposite right. of that? Where's the open communication? Do you believe that laws have taken away the parenting in today's society? Yeah, there are laws that I think are intrusive that really aren't making kids safer. I mean, it's not just the sex offender laws. I'm upset by any time a parent gets arrested for letting their kid wait in the car a few minutes. They're running in to get the dry cleaning. They can see the kid through the window, and somehow that's considered dangerous. It's not. We're sort of, like I was talking about before, we got to this point where we think that anytime you're not literally next to your child, somehow they're in danger, and, and that's just not the case. Ironically, it bothers me so much because kids are actually less safe. More kids die in parking lots than die waiting in cars, <laughs> and yet you must take your child across the parking lot to comply with some, I don't even know if it's complying with laws in some places, but people do it because they don't want somebody else to call 911 and open an investigation on them as if they've been negligent. So we've made the kids less safe because we're so worried about their safety. One of those ironies. I agree. Do you believe that it's actually endangering our children in the law about them getting in trouble? The crime rate itself has been going down. The crime rate was going up in the 60s, 70s, 80s. It peaked around 93, and it's been going down since then. So, and this is something I'm glad you're asking about it because people say, you know, the reason I have to watch my kids so closely is because crime is up. And I say like, well, didn't you play outside? Oh, yes, I did, but times have changed. I said, yeah, let's look at the chart. Let's go look at the FBI numbers together. And you look at FBI numbers, and sure enough, they've been, they've been going down. And the crime rate today, I've seen different numbers, but it's either the crime rate is back to what it was in about 1963 or about 1967. So wow. most of today's parents grew up sometime after that. And so the crime rate for them was higher than it is for their kids today, and yet they think they can't let their kids out because suddenly it's so dangerous. There are certainly a lot of pitfalls for juveniles now. I do worry about kids sexting each other and suddenly being considered child pornographers or criminals or harassers or anything like that. I so worry about, I was just reading a book about the history of childhood and how, how different it is in different eras. Like nobody ever thought about teenagers until about a hundred and something years ago. And until around the beginning of the last century, nobody had thought about different stages of childhood, like toddler is a pretty new word, and teens and tweens, adolescents, these are all new concepts. And 
you know, go back a couple of hundred years before that, people didn't even know when they were born. So the idea that, like, you could be a 17-year-old with a 15-year-old girlfriend and that's fine, but if you're an 18-year-old with a 15-year-old girlfriend, oh, my God, suddenly you're a sex criminal. That would have been so strange to any era before now to think that way. Like, on July 13th, you're a fine human being, and on July 14th, you're a predator. It's just so weird. And we sort of just accept that as like, oh, well, we're just keeping our kids safe. It's like, are you kidding? If you'd arrested him when he was 17 years old, would you have considered that safe? Then why are you considering it safe when you're arresting him at 18? It's just these arbitrary lines. And in terms of keeping kids safe, we're not keeping kids safe from really horrible fates for any kind of consensual things they might be doing. I agree with you. I agree with you even on the sex thing. I think that with the new technology, we don't understand it as adults sometimes. I know I don't understand it as best as my kids understand it. And mm-hmm. there's, a, there's dangers out there that we don't even know. Downloading games can sometimes in the back door, something else is downloaded, and we don't understand that that happened. And I know in Arizona and in Oklahoma, my children could get arrested and taken out of my home and get charged with a sex crime right in front of me, and there's nothing I can do. I can't save them. I can't stop the cops. I can't do anything. Yeah, it's like a landmine. <laughs> right, and it scares me so much. So when you said the sex scene scares you in the teens and the non-education scares you, it scares me for any state that arrests children on any type of sexual manner at all because we're creating a generation with no hope when we do that. If you have a generation that's on the registry with no hope of getting off of it, it's a generation of oh, no hope. Oh, yeah. When I would talk about this, I used to talk about these two kids who were 14 in New Jersey, and they pulled down their pants and they sat on their friends' faces. Their two boys sat on up two other boys' faces. The other boys were 12. It was gross and stupid and vile, and I'd be mortified if my kids did that. But fact of the matter is that when they went to court, one took a plea and one went through a trial, but they both ended up being put on the sex offender registry for life. That is really terrifying (laughs) to me, the idea that your kid could be doing some silly shenanigan and suddenly their life is on the registry. They're considered menace to society from their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and if they live to 100, they're still threat. I mean, it has no relation to reality. And the only hopeful thing I can say about that particular case is that New Jersey decided that juveniles cannot be put on the registry for life. So, I mean, the fact that that's a great victory just shows how far we've gone. It's like, it's a victory to say that somebody who did some stupid prank at 14 doesn't have to be thought of only in terms of that prank for the rest of his given life on earth, but that's the kind of victory we're taking now. Right. I get exactly what you're saying. Well, Nora, it was great talking with you, and I look forward to seeing you soon, and I will pass you on to my co-host, Dwayne, and you uh, have a wonderful night. Yeah, you too. Hi, Shauna. Thank you, Shauna. Hi, Lenore. It is a pleasure finally meeting you. (laughs) 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 Well, Well, talking to you, yes. I love your website, freerangekids.com, and I try to get people to understand uh, what it's like from your perspective as a parent and also the world's worst. I just think that's an honor. Worst. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Got to have a you know, you were talking. About, you were talking about helicopter parents. 
I kind of look at this today as wireless fence parents. We use cell phones and things to track our children and so forth, mm-hmm. that it just seems like we are not really giving any trust. We're monitoring them for yes. now. Yes. Think about how would it be to grow up like that? And, you know, there's, there's two different ways to do it. One is with the kid knowing and one is with the kid not knowing. And sort of reminds me of that admissions, the college admissions scandal recently. Was it worse to know that your parents were cheating on your behalf or to not know that your parents were cheating on your behalf? But in any event, growing up with the belief that your parents don't think you're capable of handling anything without them perched on your shoulder electronically would be so disheartening and possibly eviscerating. I mean, the whole idea is you want your parents to believe in you and you want to see for yourself that like if you screw up and then sort of find your way forward, that's okay. But in person, to think that your parent is always there making sure that you don't screw up, well, screw ups sound scarier than they are. And you seem less capable than you are because obviously you need an assistant all the time. And the assistant happens to be your parent. So there are apps that not only track you, there are apps that can read your temperature from afar and your blood pressure. They can see what grades you got on the quiz that day. Some schools let you have a way of monitoring what choices you made at lunch. Did you take the apple or the cake? And there are devices that can read your text and see who you're talking to and what websites you've gone to. And I'm trying to think there was something else. Oh, not how many steps you took that day. I mean, it's as if the parents can be almost omniscient. And that's a huge burden on the parents because they feel if anything bad happened, it's because they weren't paying enough attention. And it's a huge burden on the kids because they're being told basically you're a pet, you know, I'm responsible for you. You can't do anything yourself. I'm there. We chip our pets. That's what we're doing with the kids. Sure. Absolutely. When I grew up, it was, you know, I had a babysitter that was a teenage girl from the neighborhood. It was, you know, there was no cell phones, pagers, no electronics yelling out the door. Mm -hmm. It was talking from a can to another can. (laughs) Yes. And you had that one house that everyone went to. It was a trusted place. But nobody deemed that. It just became a community. Right. Uh, I remember, you know, you would go out, you could break your leg, and it would be a, a euphemism of spraying some Bactine on it uh, and then go back out. Yeah, and play. yeah. yeah <laughs> right, right, right. The right. assumption there was that you were pretty resourceful and resilient. And in fact, that's how you became resourceful and resilient. And one, gosh, I had one of my most fun things I've done recently was asked a room full of, actually, these were all school administrators. So they know they have to sort of play by the book, but we were just talking amongst ourselves. And I said, think about a time that something went really wrong when you were a kid. And frankly, I couldn't think of any. So I was pleased when they could. And they just came up with story after story. Like a a lady was, you know, when she was a kid, she was riding her bike down a hill and it was slick with all the pine needles. And so she was almost at the street. And so she squeezes the handbrakes and up (laughs) up comes the handlebars. (laughs) Like it detached from the rest of the bike. And so she's basically on a, you know, this kamikaze thing. And quickly she jumped off and threw herself into the bushes and she got all scraped up. And I said, what'd you do after that? And she said, well, we put the handlebars back on and, you know, they, they played for the rest of the afternoon, I think on that same bike. And she didn't tell her parents. And then another guy said they played mumbly peg and of course game on earth. And the, the peg went through one kid's foot and they went upstairs and like with the back teen again, and then came hobbling back down and sort of hiding the bloody sock. And there was story after story of this. And, and when I asked, why didn't you tell your parents? 
because none of them told their parents. Of course, you know the answer, which is, what do you think it is? Yeah. <laughs> um. They didn't want to worry their parents. They didn't want their parents right. to take away their freedom. The parents say, oh, my God, that's so dangerous. You come right in here and don't go play outside again. So rather than... It was sort of like the other way around. It was the children didn't want to upset the parents, <laughs> so they, sure. they sort of protected them. And that way they got to be the parents. They got to be the adults. And when you have adults always supervising kids, the kids remain the kids and the adults remain the adults. And so I, one of the reasons that there seems to be just so much anxiety among young kids today is you'd be anxious too if you were micromanaged all the time and told even by well-meaning bosses that you just weren't capable enough and let me do that. But I also think that society, as far as law enforcement and the libelous side of us, Mm -hmm. practice a method to children or to an audience of see something, you must say something. And if you don't, there will be consequences. Yeah. How do we get away from that narrative? You know, the see something, say something is so pernicious. I'm in New York City, you know, we gave birth to see something, say something. Yes. And there are signs up, my God, the New Jersey Transit is obsessed with it. They want you to say something whenever you see basically somebody forgot their lunch on the train, you're supposed to call the bomb squad. And what's interesting, it's just sort of like we were talking about earlier, like if you don't trust anyone, you don't trust anything, you've lost all your common sense. You're not allowed to say, oh, that's probably a lunch or, oh, I see it leaking. It's probably a, you know, a a leaky lunch. I mean, and not only are you supposed to react with alarm to the most commonplace situations, like the person trying to come in behind you at the daycare center and the lunch that's left on the train, but it always says, always alert an MTA employee or the police. So you're never supposed to assume that you have any wherewithal of your own. You're always supposed to immediately call the authorities. And the signs that upset me the most in the New York City subway are, if you see a sick passenger, do not attempt to help them, call the police. And I'm like, are you telling me I'm not a human? You know, I see a little old lady and she twists her ankle and I can't say, here, hold on to me. I'll, you know, let's walk over to the bench. This is only for somebody with a badge to do. I mean, it really is telling us just like the parents tracking the kids are sort of giving them the subliminal message of, you know, I may love you, but I don't trust you to do anything safely or successfully. Similarly, we're getting messages from the authorities that say, you're not capable of being fully human. This is a job for somebody who has been trained and it makes us less human. So based on that answer, how do you educate others about registrants living in a community? What I talk about a lot are the facts, because I think that most people have a lot of misconceptions of what it means if you're living near somebody who is on the sex offender registry. First of all, they think that the recidivism rate, you know, the rate of committing a sex crime again is very high. And in fact, as you must know, it's the lowest of any criminals except murderers, burglars, arsonists, muggers, robbers, all those people have a much higher rate of recidivism of committing a crime and being found guilty of it again than anyone on the registry. And people think it's the opposite. People think that the the recidivism rate is, as the Supreme Court mistook it, frightening and high, which turned out to be absolutely wrong according to so many studies that have been done. And I've been reading the studies because one of the reasons parents are afraid to let their kids 
play outside anymore is because now we have a public registry and they look and they see a dot, whether it's down the block or two miles away, and they assume that this is a person who is an obvious and immediate threat to their child, and so they can't let their child out. And yet, these studies I read, like this really fascinating one from Washington, D.C., showed that people who live on the block with a person on the registry and people who live on a block with nobody on the registry have identical rates of crime or no crime. I mean, there's, there's just no difference in terms of living down the block from somebody on the registry versus not living down the block from somebody on the registry. The chances of something bad happening or not happening are equal on both those blocks. So when we, when we obsess about people on the registry threatening our children and look in that direction, we're looking in the wrong direction because the vast majority of, of crimes against kids are committed by people they know, not by people on the registry. So you're obsessing about the registry and forgetting that you really want to make your kids safe. You teach them what the Boy Scouts teach them, the three R's, you know, recognize that nobody can touch you where your bathing suit covers, resist, which is run, kick, scream, and report. If somebody asks you know, to do something or you do something and feel wrong about it and they've said keep it a secret, don't keep it a secret. You can always come to right. me, your mom, your dad, your whoever it is, your teacher, and I won't be mad at you. And those things are going to keep your kids so much safer than keeping them inside till they're 18 because there's this person on the registry two blocks away. Right. And New York City just came out with a governor just released this subway banning. And I'm thinking, well, I could be standing in line at Dwayne Reed, and I don't know who's in front or behind. And millions of people ride the subway. I don't know how this legislation – right. It's how this legislation will be effective enough it just creates another see something, say something as far it as just how, seems that, like a, how that particular a law out of the blue. I don't understand it. We all get on the subway with the Metro card. You just get on. There are literally millions upon millions of people taking it every day. New York is out of the 25 largest cities in America. We're the safest. So it's not like there's been some spike in subway crimes or sex crimes. So I think it was just somebody trying to come up with some new way of saying, I don't like people harming children sexually. Nobody does. <laughs> but it's just sort of a, it's, it's a virtue signaling idea. It doesn't have any way of working and it's not ending a, a crime because this was not a crime wave that we were seeing. Right. And lastly, Children are growing statistic for sex offenses with sexting, photographs, cell phones, electronic devices. While we're talking about parents maybe snowplowing, who is creating really a path for the parent? Technology is outpacing them. What tips do you have for parents? You know, there was this woman in Iowa I met at a conference who was so great. She went around to schools, and I guess kids have had a ton of assemblies where you get you know, you come into the auditorium and somebody lectures you about stranger danger or something like that. Well, her lecture was, watch out, you have no idea that if you sext a friend, and she she teaches this to kids when they're young enough that hopefully they haven't started yet. I think she teaches middle school kids this, that this could be mistaken for a crime. And this is what it means to be considered a child pornographer. And this is what the consequences could be. And I bless her. I mean, because just like kids need to know the birds and the bees, this is how you can get pregnant. I'd say that you certainly need to know how you could end up 
being considered a sex offender for sharing pictures with a friend or for, for taking a picture of yourself, whatever. This is really, this is as important for your kid's future as learning about the birds and the bees. And I'd say it's good for parents to recognize how draconian the laws are. Try to change the laws. The laws have not kept pace with the fact that now everybody can make a photograph in the blink of an eye. They were The laws, I think, were made when people had to use film and actually creating porn as opposed to sexting your friend because everybody else is doing it. So the laws haven't kept pace, the parents haven't kept pace, and the punishments are crazy. Thank you very much, and it's a pleasure talking to you. And Michael, I know you have some follow-up questions. I always do. Thanks, Dwayne. I'm the cleanup man. I'm going to give you something to put in your what's the worst that can happen file. You said you had a discussion with people about the bad things that happened to them as a kid or the worst thing they ever did as oh, a kid. Oh, yeah, yeah, when yeah, I was, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. When I was 11 years old, I got it into my head that I really wanted to manufacture a bunch of ninja bombs. And oh, so no. me and my best friend went to the supermarket, pooled all of our dollars, and it doesn't take much because a package of Strike Anywhere matches, the ones with the phosphorus tips on them, were only about 25 cents each at that time. So we bought boxes and boxes and bo- probably 20 or 30 boxes of Strike Anywhere matches. We took them home. We had a slumber party <laughs> and sat all oh, night no. with wire cutters, cutting the tips <sighs> off of these Strike Anywhere matches, filling a plastic bucket with them. And oh, just no. as the bucket was almost oh, no. full, no. one of the match heads ignited <gasps> while we were cutting it off. Dropped no. into the bucket full of, <gasps> full of basically gunpowder and phosphorus. Oh, no. And literally sent flames <gasps> to the ceiling. My parents <gasps> were asleep down the hall. And the first thing I thought of was stuff a pillow under the door so the smoke doesn't get out and they don't know that there's a minor explosion in my bedroom. Yes. The plastic bucket melted into the carpet. (laughs) Literally, we had to throw open the windows and dive out onto the lawn. And we sat there choking and gagging and throwing up on the lawn for about 20 minutes. Then we spent the next three or four hours cleaning the ash and the smoke and the, 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 the molten bucket and luckily. Luckily, it was a weekend. That's when you have slumber parties, right? Parents didn't get up until later. Luckily, by 9 or so, when they got up in the morning, we had eliminated all traces of the fact that there I had been a minor explosion it. in the house. Oh, my so, God. Uh, so you can add that to your file of crazy things that kids will do. Wow. And I didn't tell my dad about this until about <gasps> five years ago. <laughs> so <laughs> literally 50 years later, I told my dad about it, and he, wow. he was in total disbelief. So um, really? you can just add that to your crazy stuff that kids will do. Wait, so you, and, don't think that, you don't think they knew? I mean, how could you wake up and no. not smell a sulfur fire down the hall? <laughs> well, Honestly, they never went into my room, and I, you know, I mean, I was to, to the point of caulking my door so there would be no odor <laughs> getting out. Wow. Literally, we laundered everything, wow. we scrubbed everything, we, you know, went, we drenched everything in bleach. I mean, it was, you've never seen kids do that much cleaning before, but. Yes, that's uh, interesting. So, so let me ask you a question. What do you think sure. you learned from that? I mean, aside from like what idiots putting sulfur matches yeah. into, you know, a flammable right. thing. But other than that, what do you think you learned? Well, I learned a lot of self-confidence in the fact that I, when I cause a problem, I can also fix the problem. So it was on me to make it as if it had never happened. And that's not easy. <laughs> a molten, 
when a molten bucket melts into your carpet, what do you do, right? Uh, In my case, I took an iron on the low setting and melted the plastic further into the carpet down into the padding so it couldn't be seen. I found that magic temperature between the melting point of a plastic bucket and the melting point of the polyester carpet. So I I learned (laughs) chemistry, too. Uh Uh, But that was just one of many things that I I mean, that's not even the craziest thing. It's the only thing I'll admit to on the air. But I learned. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I learned a great deal of self-reliance. I learned problem solving. I learned right. how to manage a crisis, how to deal with panic, because that's the first thing you want to do is right, panic when something right, like that right, happens. Right. And so I have, in the 50 years since that time, I've become the guy people want to have around when it's an emergency. Now, I spent 20 years wow. in the Army. I've been through three shooting wars. I'm the guy that you call when things are not going right. And I'm wow. kind of proud of that. I'm kind of proud of that. I'm a problem solver. Even in my corporate careers mm-hmm. that I've had, I've always been a big mm-hmm. problem solver. That's been my greatest value Asset. to mm-hmm. uh, any company mm-hmm. that I've worked for. So I think that all started as a kid solving the problems that I myself created sometimes. So you can right, add now that what to your if, file. No, mm-hmm. no, no, Go I ahead. am. And I'm so interested in this because so now what if it was modern day, somehow you were still as scrappy as kids were back then. But So it's modern mm-hmm. day and... Of course, there's a monitor in your room, and right. suddenly the monitor, make, you know, the parents hear it in the other room, and it makes noise, or there's something beeps on their phone, or they can turn on the little thing that, oh, there's, there's these horrible watches that kids can have put oh, on yeah. them, especially when they're younger, that not only do they track the kids and that the parent can call the kid, but if the parent calls the kid and they don't pick up within a certain amount of time, like 30 seconds, it turns into a walkie-talkie, mm-hmm. right, the assumption that of course, they're preventing a kidnapping. But, you know, this is this to me is a gross affront to privacy because it means that the kid just, the parent could always be listening in. So what if your parents were listening in? They hear the explosion and they come running down the hall. What's different about the experience? Well, if that had happened today, my parents would probably still be in jail for allowing me to do something so crazy. And no joke. I mean, I would probably have gone to juvenile hall. My parents probably would have been charged with neglect or some sort of neglectful abuse for allowing me to have a munitions Uh factory in my bedroom. But for me, it was just, I just wanted to be a ninja. I wanted some ninja (laughs) smoke bombs and and they work great. I'm not going to give anybody ideas. I won't tell you how to do it, but but I think you just yeah. did. <laughs> well, no, I left so out I a crucial part. Anywhere, a crucial ingredient. But <laughs> yeah, my parents would be in jail. And that's the sad thing. My parents always considered me to be a, a model child, a straight A student. I was never in trouble as a child. At least I never got caught at anything. And today, my gosh, I don't think children ever have a chance to be independent and be problem solvers that's and the to thing. be. Right. You know, Back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, it feels like it's innate to want to know what your child is doing at every single second and to prevent them from ever having an experience like you just described, you know, where there's an explosion and something's dangerous and scary and confusing and makes you upset and panic. Don't wish those particular experiences on kids. I don't want them to be, you know, panicked and on fire, but, <laughs> you know, it's something on fire. But when you have to, you know, when a weird, scary thing comes up and you deal with it, it's like that's fuel, you know. You're the strike anywhere match. You can handle anything because 
you know, you've, you've come through the fire, literally. Why do we think we even mm-hmm. say that phrase, <laughs> right? Sure. Because you've come sure. through something and you're forged. Right. Now, it's been about a year since your victory in Utah, the, oh, the uh, free-range free kids, kids bill. Uh, do you have any uh-huh. other states on your on your target list to get something like that passed? We do. It's too soon to say if any of them will pass it, but, but we're hopeful. Okay. Yeah. Super. Let's hope. You're also going to be a speaker for the NARSAL annual conference in June. Are you, are you looking forward to I'm certainly looking mm-hmm. forward to hearing you. Uh, can you tell yeah, us what no, you're going to be talking be a, about? Uh, no, because I haven't figured it out yet, but I'm sure, <laughs> sure there will be something fascinating and hilarious ahead. Uh-huh. Mostly I, I really like to think about the – you know, the way we think that it's natural to be afraid every second of everything when it comes to our kids. Where did that fear come from? What's it doing to us as parents? What's it doing to our kids? And how can we gain back some of the confidence that somehow we used to have in our kids and our communities when we're constantly being told that everybody is in danger and everyone's a threat to our kids? It's it's a weird moment to be living through, like we were talking about before, crime is down and fear is up. So how do, right. we, how do we get grateful as opposed to terrified? With 25% of all the people on sex offender registries being juveniles and 36% of all crimes against juveniles, sex crimes against juveniles being committed by juveniles, what do you think we have to do to reverse that trend? Well, first of all, I think we have to be really careful what we're calling a crime. If something, like we were talking about before, if there's a 14-year-old and a 17-year-old, who decides that that's a crime if the if the people involved for them, it was consensual? So that's A. And, and if we're calling sexting a crime, well, then you're going to have a ton of juveniles on the registry or committing quote-unquote crimes because, as far as I can tell, sexting is extremely common. It's sort of like we're looking at sexting because it is weird and nobody would have done it back in the days when you had to do a daguerreotype or whatever, you know, a tintype, right? They weren't mm-hmm. sexting then, but it's so easy now. I think we have to start reconsidering what we consider abnormal and licentious almost. I mean, it's sort of like mm-hmm. if you had worn a bikini to Coney Island in 1920, you would have been taken away by the vice cops because that would have been considered absolutely, like, you know, just abhorrent. You couldn't possibly do it. Everybody was wearing bloomers. And sure. it's possible that sexting today is what the bikini would have been in an, in an earlier era, too. It's just it's a disconnect between what has become really normal and where the laws still are. So I think the mm-hmm. laws have to evolve in terms of sexting and then I worry for young people uh, that it is far too easy to end up being considered a sex offender for something that was consensual. That's very scary to me. And I've certainly read about cases where kids have been doing things as basic as playing doctor, like young kids. And if you think there's something worse going on, then counseling is required. But our answer to every problem that we don't know how to deal with, whether, gee, kids shouldn't be sexting, or why doesn't Bobby know that he shouldn't play doctor with his friend who's a year younger than him, seems to be, let's criminalize them. And that just is so, first of all, uncreative. <laughs> you know, It's mm-hmm. pretty basic. It's like using the same club to hit everything. And, right. and if you want to make people safer, 
You educate and you counsel and you give people of all stripes a chance to be rehabilitated as opposed to just living under constant criminalization and the idea that you can't ever change is wrong. Everybody can change. Everybody can become better. And we don't seem to see that even with our youngest people on the registry. Those 14-year-olds were found that they should be on the registry of dangerous sex offenders when they're Uh horsing around on the playground and they sit on their friends' faces, whatever it was. You give them something to do to make amends, and there can be some punishment for terrible behavior. But to turn people into pariahs for doing something like that is as crazy as like the death penalty for dealing $100. I mean, it's just, it's out of whack. Yeah, absolutely. Tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you or learn a little bit more about what you're doing. Oh, well, Google America's Worst Mom and you'll find me all over the place. (laughs) And, you know, I give talks, I write, I write op-eds, and my name's Lenore Skidazy. You'll find me. Super. All right. Well, Thank you so much for being our guest this evening. We could probably talk for another couple hours. You're so interesting and so much fun to talk to, and we'll be sure to have you on again sometime. And I want you to think of the Narsal Conference as your opportunity to buy me a sandwich. So I'll see you there. Okay. All right. Get Come hungry. <laughs> I absolutely will. Thank you so much for being here. All right. My name is Michael McKay, and you have been listening to Registry Report Radio. Take care.